Romans chapter 8, if you would, please. Two verses today, verses 26 and 27, Romans chapter 8. There are a couple, um, there's more than a couple, but there's a couple of huge um, Christian-only doctrines that separate it from the world. One is what we've been studying for weeks and weeks, grace alone. There is, there is no other faith, no other religion in the world that says you can't fix it on your own, that you need a savior. Christianity does. And there's another doctrine about Christianity that's unique, and that is that it affirms the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have been, for the last several months, going through this wonderful letter to the Romans from Paul. And uh, I find that we're in chapter 8. I told you before, it's probably the most significant chapter I know of, of describing the activity of the Spirit of any chapter in Scripture. So we're going to spend some time on that this morning. And the Trinity is all over. It's littered throughout the Scriptures. But the funny thing about the Trinity is I, can't, I don't have a verse to point to. I, I can't take you to a verse that says, here's how it's laid out and here's how it's defined. It's just all over. Everywhere you look, you see the activity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if that's hard to get your head around, that's okay. Welcome to the club. I don't know very many people who, by a sentence or a paragraph, can define the Trinity. And, and to be honest with you, I think that's sort of godlike. I mean, imagine for a second that you could define everything about God and understand everything about God. He would not be God. But there's mystery, and there is secrets, and there are so much otherly thoughts about God that he wouldn't be God if we knew it. He is, as we know the scriptures tell us, he is the creator, the sustainer. He is holy, always was, and always will be. He is everywhere, all the time. He's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, just to name a few. But we are totally left up to God to know anything about God, right? I don't even understand his name. Remember Moses when he was with God at the mountain, and he said, I'm going to go back and tell your people I hung out with you. Who do I tell them I was with? I am. There you go. This wonderful, incomprehensible God has described himself as one God, three persons. Here in chapter 8, we see more depictions of the work of the Spirit for us as believers than any other place. We see it in redemption. We see it in sanctification. We see it in adoption. We saw it last week in our inheritance, in, in, our, in our hope. And so, just so we know, the, to- the totality of the salvation story is this wonderful work that God calls sinners the Holy Spirit wakes them up to believe, and the, spirit, the work of Christ gets applied to our life. That work of the whole Trinity is what saves us, amen? So we know that, but I think we do a pretty good job of recognizing the Father and the Son, but I think we kind of ignore the Spirit. I know it's unintentional, but it's sort of left, he's sort of left out. A little bit assumed. So um, I, I want to point out a few of the significant moments we've had in chapter 8 and the work of the Spirit, just to remind you, because today we're going to get close to what He does in His ministry for us. So in, in verse 2, just as a reminder, we saw that Paul told us that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. In verse 4, we saw that the Spirit applies the righteous requirements that God expects to our account. In verse 6, we saw that the Spirit gives life and peace to us. In verse 11, we saw that God will raise you from the dead by the Spirit that dwells in you. In verse 13, we saw that the Spirit helps you put to death the deeds of the body. Verses 15 and 16, we saw that the Spirit gives us an assurance of this salvation of ours. 
And last week in verse 23, we saw that the Spirit and His work is, is a foretaste of this ultimate redemption we all are looking forward to, this one day in glory. And that's the work of the Spirit. In verses 18 through 25, I, we worked through this last week, but Paul took us through what I would call a, a perspective lesson. He told us this thing that we don't like too well, and that is that if you're a Christian, you can count on suffering. Like suffering is one of the birthmarks of, of a Christian, that all Christians suffer, either, either suffering for the pushback of the world in, of Christ in you or suffering of dying to yourself on a consistent basis. But nonetheless, we're all in the process of, of suffering. But the perspective comes in here for Paul. He says, to, he, he says about suffering, he contrasts it to the glory to come. And he simply says, put it on the scale. The glory to come so far outweighs this temporary suffering that you're, you're going through. And by the way, creation groans for that day. Because God subjected creation to frustration and decay. And uh, it's groaning because it's not the way it should be. And so it's longing. Creation is longing for the day of our glory, the day of our ultimate redemption, where things will be made right. Paul also said that not only creation is groaning, but we're groaning too that there's a final piece to the salvation puzzle for us. Now, we're right now as saved as we'll ever be. We're positionally holy before God because we're covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. And yet, here's this truth. One day, God will perfect these bodies, and he will present us to the heavenly host as his kids. There is a glory to come for the church. Understand? So here's what Paul says. Creation groans for that day, so glory outweighs suffering. You wait for that day, so glory outweighs suffering. And then we just touched on it, verses 26 and 27. We saw that the Spirit of God himself is groaning for that day. So I want to go back to these two verses today, and I want us to see one particular unbelievable truth, that the Holy Spirit gets close to us in our prayers, his ministry in our prayer life. So let's look at this in verse 26 and 27. Now, speaking of this groaning, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know how long you've been coming to redemption, but it was almost a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, we began a series called The Essential Elements of a Strong Church. Remember that? And, and all we did was lay out biblical principles of the activity of the church. We wanted it to be clear so that if we were going to assess ourselves and hope to be good at something in the future, maybe God and people would look at these things and say, that's what they're known for. So in, in our climate, all around redemption, we are believing, trusting, teaching, holding up the word of God. So one of the essential elements of a strong church is that it, it really respects, reveres, understands this is the word of God. So any environment you go to, in any place in redemption, whether it's men's or women's or students or children or whatever, it's going to be anchored to the word of God. We also saw, uh, looked at this essential element of biblical community that God now, once he starts this work in us, has decided the mechanism by which we become disciple, the one another's. That if you're unplugged from the body, you're not going to grow as God intends. So we want to be known for people who are really into one another's, the biblical community. We also saw that Jesus was a servant and we are saved to serve, so we serve the body. We meet the body's needs. We get busy helping other people. We also looked at intentional evangelism. In fact, uh, this was 13 months ago. We asked for you names. 
We got 3,000 names, by the way, that we still pray for every Wednesday and every Thursday. I hope you're still praying for them. Names of friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers that you said need Jesus. And so we're, we've got these names on pieces of paper, and we're just praying for them every, every week. And, and so we understand that God has called us to mission, and the mission is to tell people of the hope of the glory of God and Christ, and so we're telling that story. That's what we want to be known for. We also talked about generosity, that God is a God who gives. He gave life to sinners like us, and because the, the, the demeanor of God is a giving God, we want to replicate this demeanor, and so we give. We give of our life, we give of our, our gifts, we give of our money, we give of our possessions to serve the king, Right? Amen? So if the world was going to look at us, they would say, man, those people love the word. Boy, they love each other. Man, they serve each other. They give. They're just open-handed people. There, there was one thing we talked about. It's almost 13 months ago to the day. We talked about the essential element of prayer. And um, to be honest with you, the lesson was more about a, a pragmatic look at prayer, like, like what to do and, and how to do it and how to be consistent in it. We, we talked... Prayer stuff, like uh, the prayer of faith and prayer and humility and prayer according to God's will and with right hearts and sincere hearts and persistently, all the things that the scriptures say about prayer when you, when you pray. I believe that the two verses we look at today are going to teach us more about prayer than any other passage I know of in the scripture. It's going to free you, probably motivate you to pray more and differently. And, and by the way, Paul's intention with the entire chapter of chapter 8, but specifically here, is encouragement. He wants the church to be encouraged. And, and all I know when it comes to the topic of prayer, it is, it is one of the few things that if you say it to almost every Christian, they all got to put their head down and go, I could do better, right? Almost every, well, they say 90% of evangelicals say they do not have a meaningful prayer life. Now, I don't know what that's based on other than just how they feel about it, but almost all Christians would say, I could do more. I could pray more consistently. I could pray more effectively. Or, or you're frustrated with your prayer life. You don't see answers or answers that you're looking for. And so there's a level of frustration in your, in your prayer life. I think Paul here in these two verses gives us the reason why. If there's any level of frustration or struggle in your prayer life, Paul gives us right out of the chute the biggest reason why. I'm going to give you two points, simple outlines, and you'll be able to remember this without even trying. One point that he makes in these verses is that all of us are weak, okay? The other point is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, okay? Real simple. You can carry that with you. Let's look at the first one in verse 26, that all of us are weak. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, um, I thought about trying to prove that point, but then I said, that's stupid. Who in here doesn't know you're weak? Anybody in here struggling with that? Like you're the exception to the rule? Here's how we're weak. You don't know what you don't know. You can't accomplish what you set your mind to. You get tired and you quit. There is a weakness to being human that is universal to every person I've ever met. So I don't want to build the emergency for weakness. You just all tap out and say, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm weak. But I want you to see this one word in here because it comforts me and I think it will comfort you. When he says, likewise the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Now, who just wrote that? Paul wrote it. And Paul included himself in the subject of weakness. Now, I think we have a struggle as a church, typically, and I'm talking church universal. We picture in our little private mind the super saint that has whatever it is we aren't wired right? 
uh, maybe someday I'll know what they know. Maybe someday I'll pray like they pray. Maybe someday I'll do what they do, but they just, they're just so far above me, right? Right? And, and so we have this perspective that saints, like people want you get to that level and understand those things clearly, and you got, you got it wired. And yet Paul says, Paul, our weaknesses, our struggles, and all Paul's talking about is what it means to be human, Right? In fact, that's that is his intent here. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about your struggles of sin. He's talking about the realities of your humanness, which is true in every person, right? Uh, we are physically weak. You can't endure. You grow old. I love the passage when uh, Jesus invites his disciples who were serious about what he was doing. Come and pray with me. And all they could do was sleep. Not because they weren't sincere, not because they didn't love Jesus, not because they didn't get it. It's because they couldn't, because they were weak. Um, we're weak in our mind. It wanders. It's confused, some more than others. Um, our perspective is so small. The kingdom is so big. We're called to think big picture, and yet it's really hard to see how the big picture works out for our good and in his glory, and so we don't see the whole thing. We are, in essence, ignorant. We don't understand, and all of this should drive us to pray. And specifically, one of the ways in which we're weak, Paul mentions here in the second sentence of verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We have, a, we have a problem. We're weak in our prayer. Everyone I know has difficulty praying like they want to. Everyone I know. There, there's some examples to what Paul has just said here. Um, and I don't know if you can relate to this. And I don't know if you would say, well, yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. Like you don't know how to pray. That you're in a situation where you're not certain if you should pray over here or pray over here. You don't know how to align yourself with what God may be doing. So you pray what you want, but you don't know if what you want is what God wants. And so it's confusing, right? Fair? Anybody in here want to admit that? That's part of the confusion. Now, over and over again in Scripture, you see examples of men, sometimes mighty men who are confused. So we understand that what Paul's saying is universal to mankind. So if I bring up the character Job, do you know the story of Job? L let me reflect on it for some of you who don't know Job. Job was a, a righteous man. In fact, God thought so. And somewhere or another, Satan is in front of the Lord and, and suggests, or the Lord suggests to him, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He fears me. He obeys me. He shuns evil. And Satan had the audacity to say, well, he doesn't do that for nothing. I mean, you've put a hedge around him. Like, you've made everything work for him. He's got the golden touch. Who wouldn't follow God who gives him everything? And so God says, you want to sift him? Go ahead and sift him. And so right after that, Satan comes in. The passage reads almost unbearable. It's like one moment after another, almost instantaneously, instantaneously, all in the same matter of hours, he loses all his possessions, he loses his home, and he loses his children. All just like that. And Job says... Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and he did, not, he did not sin against God. Sometime later, Satan is in front of God, and God says, have you seen him now? Have you seen Job now? And Satan says, well, he doesn't serve you for nothing. He's healthy. You touch his flesh, and he'll quit. So God said, okay, go ahead. You can touch his flesh. You just can't kill him. So uh, Satan inflicts 
Job with swords, head to feet with swords, so much so that he's now, Job is sitting in an ash heap, scraping his open swords with a broken piece of pottery, okay? And he still doesn't sin against the Lord. Now, there's a section in there where Job is responding to his circumstances, and he's completely confused, just like you and I would be because we don't know what we don't know. In the kingdom of God, God is doing something, displaying his glory and his intentions, boasting about righteousness, overcoming evil, all right? Job has no idea, and yet this is what Job prays. God, why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my sin? That's what he thought. There's no way I've lost everything and my health for any other reason than I screwed up somewhere. There was no perspective from God to him that God was somehow demonstrating to Satan something greater. He didn't know. Here's a righteous man in God's mind who just didn't know what he didn't know. How about the character Elijah? Do you remember this story in, in 1 Kings? It's a great story too. Um, Elijah was the prophet, the sole prophet of God, Yahweh. And he was living in a climate around Israel, God's people, who had denied the real God and had started taking up false worship. And the prophets of Baal were everywhere, hundreds of them. So God sent Elijah to, to kind of expose the reality that there is one God and Baal's not it. And so this wonderful you know, moment of conflict where Elijah suggests a competition of sorts. You prophets of Baal, let's, let's do this. Let's build altars and let's pray down our God, to burn up the offering. And whosoever God does it will be the real deal. And so the prophets of Baal got to go first, and they build an altar, and they put a calf on the altar, and they spend all day ranting and raving and cutting themselves, trying to call down some fictitious, not real God to do something to this sacrifice. Of course, it didn't do anything. And Elijah simply builds an altar, and he puts up the stones, puts a calf on it, and covers it, just loads it down with water. And he just prays a simple prayer. God, show yourself. Prove it. And fire comes from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the wood and the stones and the ground with which the sacrifice was on. And all the people said, wait a minute, there's a God, and that's him. And yet Elijah said, see the prophets of Baal? Let's go kill them. Let's destroy the false gods. Let's destroy the people that are uh, deceiving others. Now, you would think after a moment like that with Elijah, he'd kind of get a little bigger, right? Shoulders a little wider, a little bit more confidence, a little strength. Chapter 19. Hey, Elijah, Jezebel wants to kill you. Text tells us that Elijah goes, hides under a tree, and he prays to God, God, kill me. You don't know what you don't know. And you're weak, and you're afraid, and you're inconsistent, and you're stuck because we have a limited perspective. How about Paul himself? You remember the the story in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul is kind of third person describing someone who went to heaven, the third heaven, and got an experience. And he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows that stuff. And he's really speaking of himself. And I think he's describing it third person because he wants to be humble about it, not, you know, boasting about it. In fact, he even says that in, that in that chapter. He said, in order to keep me from being conceited because God has given me such a great revelation, God has given me a thorn in the flesh. Do you remember this? Now, what did Paul do about the thorn in the flesh? He prayed, not once, not twice, three times, God, take this away from me. And what did God say? No. Right. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
Paul didn't know. Paul didn't know that a weak position, whatever the thorn was, was a better position. God knew that. And we have all these examples of super saints who are just praying. They don't know. They don't know what God might be doing in the kingdom. They can only see what they can see. And that's true for all of us. When it comes to um, this, the word of God, these black and white words, um, it's clear. In fact, I don't think you even have to pray about it. You, you can pray for encouragement and understanding and all that kind of thing. But to what? The what part of this? Once God says do, you do, Right? Once he says don't, you don't. It's, it's pretty simple as long as you understand it. But, and I want you to get this, when it comes to the details of our life, we don't know. We don't know anything. And the next couple paragraphs I'm going to say, you've got to hang in there and let me finish, okay? Because it's going to sound absurd. But I want you to get this. You don't know whether you're supposed to pray to get out of suffering or pray to stay in it. I know why you do. Trust me, I'm just like you. I don't want suffering. I choose blessing and all the good stuff. But I don't know what I'm supposed to pray for. When, when God gives you sickness, I know why you pray to get healed. But do you know what God is doing? Do you know that you're supposed to pray for it to stay or go? Do you know? You don't know. I know why we do. Do you pray when God gives you a sick child or you lose a loved one? Do you pray that that doesn't happen? And I know why we do. But we don't know what God is doing. Do you get my point? We are limited in our perspective, and I know it sounds crazy, but if I told you that right now, this week, I was studying this passage, and God shipped me through email everyone's story, like I have every one of your stories, and he's told me about all the things he's going to do in your life and how he's going to accomplish them, and your story includes poverty, sickness, the loss of a loved one, it would be pointless to pray against it, wouldn't it? God is sovereign. If God says it's going to happen... It's going to happen. But here's what we know. Because we're weak and we're human, we pray. Because we don't. We are ignorant of those things. And we pray into those things. As Paul says it this way, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But here's the encouragement part of what Paul is saying. We've got help. We, we've got help in our, in our prayers. You see it in, in verse 26? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, that word help is a great word. It's a complex word. It's a rich word. It's made up of three specific Greek words to try to define how valuable God's help is. And the word, when it's all said and done, is describing like someone coming alongside you. You've got a huge burden to carry, and this someone, the Spirit of God, comes alongside and helps you carry this burden, right? We all understand that, that analogy. It's, by the way, only used one other time in all of Scripture. In, in Luke chapter 10, it's the story where Jesus is at Martha and Mary's house. Remember this story? And... Uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. She's doing all the worshiping and all that stuff. And Martha's running around the kitchen cooking, cleaning. And she looks over at Jesus and says, Jesus, tell Mary to help. Tell her to carry the other half of this thing because this is heavy. Okay, that's the only other place this word is used. And that's exactly what, what Paul is saying about the Spirit's activity to us. He comes alongside of us. And I want you to notice something that's implied here, and it's true. It implies that the Holy Spirit doesn't do all the lifting. He cooperates with our lifting. So that means we pray and he prays. It means that we obey the word 
and we submit to it, and we study the scriptures, and we serve other people, we do that. We don't just let go and let God. That isn't part of it. He helps us in, in our weaknesses. It's, it's kind of like this. You, you want to see power and help in your prayer life? It, it kind of is, is like this description. Cut me some slack on the analogy, but it's almost as if you're working through your life. You don't see or understand how or what God might be doing, and the Holy Spirit, in essence, says, let me grab the other end, and let me take it to the Father in heaven, and let me pray for you exactly what you would pray if you knew what you were doing. That's what he says about prayer. I'll do that for you. Look at the, another thing that he says here. Um, that phrase, groaning's too deep for words, it means that, that he intercedes on a very deep emotional level. Intercedes means to plead for someone. And so that's what the Spirit of God does with groaning's too deep for words. John MacArthur says this about that phrase. Now hang in there with it. It's a little deep. Divine articulations within the Trinity that can't be expressed in words but carry profound appeals for the welfare of every believer. That's what the Spirit is doing. He's feeling how we feel. It's like how I felt on Friday and yesterday sitting in Kevin's room a little bit, I think. What do you say? I don't know anything. I don't know if he's going to get better or how better he's going to get. I don't know if this is just a blip on the screen or if it's some major catastrophe. I don't know. And so I watch his wife and his child. What do you say? You say nothing. There's nothing to say. You feel what they're feeling. And the Spirit of God, although he knows the perfect will of God, he gets so close to us and our circumstances that he feels our aches. Are you encouraged by that? Does that bless your heart that he gets that close to us? He carries our needs at the deepest emotional level, and he translates all the hurts and all the cares of the Father, every one of them perfectly aligned with his will. So you can sound like mumbo-jumbo. You can sound like you don't have a clue how to pray, and he's okay with that. He understands. Another thing he says in verse 27, that the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. Look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I want you to get this. This is awesome. This is the best part about prayer that I've learned recently, and that is this. The Spirit makes corrections for all the confused, misdirected prayers I pray. Is that good? You don't have to be perfect. He catches it. He catches it and says, well, this is what they, this is what they want. This, this is what they, they need. Exactly according to the will of God. Doug Moo, in his commentary, says it this way, and then I'll redefine it because whenever you read commentary, it's undefinable. So um, Paul says that our failure to know God's will and a consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. And when they do not know what to pray for, yes, even when they pray for things that are not best for us, we, in, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. Do you understand? So here's what it means. When you don't know what to pray for, when you think you do and you're dead wrong, the Holy Spirit intercepts that prayer, translates that prayer based on this truth, that if they knew, God, what you were doing, they would ask for it this way. And he gives it to the Father. You get that? 
That's the most awesome thing in the world. There's a so what to this, and I'm going to tell you in a minute. So here's how it happens. You pray confused and hurt and burdened and lost. The Spirit grabs it and says, okay, God, this is what you're doing. This is what he's asking for. It's a wonderful ministry of the Spirit to us. Every one of us have stories like this where you are convinced the angle of your prayer life. This was years ago, like 25 years ago for me, 27 years ago. I had, a, I had what you call a gravy job. Someone, someone gave me the job of general manager of a hotel. Okay, I was 26 or something like that. Had a full staff, had an apartment, had cars, had the whole thing with the whole job. I was um, wrongfully terminated, um, and I'm not bitter <laughs> anymore. But I started praying. I prayed for a job. In fact, my family and I, my wife and I moved to Colorado to look for work. And I prayed for work. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I was diligent. I did all that stuff and I kept praying. And God didn't give me that job. Little did I know that God said, you're supposed to be a youth pastor in some little podunk church in Illinois. I didn't know that. The Spirit of God did and he answered that prayer. I didn't even know what to pray for. You get my point? And there's thousands of those illustrations in the church. That we just pray what we pray because we know what we know and he sorts it out. When it comes to this revealed will of God, you don't have to pray. I mean, you can pray for the strength to do it and understand it. I get that. But just do it. But when it comes to God's, like, specific in our life will, we can trust the Holy Spirit to sort it all out and make it right. There, there is one more observation, and you're probably smart enough to catch it, all right? And the, and the last observation is this. If it's true that the Spirit always intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, which Paul says is true, then watch this. All of your prayers are always answered. So if you have experienced a prayer life that you would say, is, gosh, it just doesn't seem to do much, or I'm frustrated because I ask for these things and they don't happen, well, it's because you're, you're convinced that what you asked for was right. Fair? But if it's true that the Holy Spirit takes it, translates it, and gives you what you would want if you knew what God knew, then all of your prayers are answered. Do you understand? Does that make sense? That's a wonderful truth that's comforting to the church. We don't have to worry. God answers all prayers faithfully in his time and his way according to his will. And we're at peace. I love this illustration, and I understand there's mystery to this, so I'm not trying to put God in a box. But, you know, when uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed in Luke chapter 22, he is looking at Peter, telling Peter that, hey, you're going to deny. Satan's asked to have you. But Peter, I've prayed for you. And it's interesting to know what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that uh, Peter ultimately wouldn't fail in his faith and that when he was done with his trial, he would then build up the saints. He did not pray that he wouldn't deny him. If I was Jesus, that's stupid. If I was me, I would have prayed that he didn't deny him because there's no way denying is good, right? There's no way that's good. Jesus says, yeah, he's going to, but watch what I'm going to do with that denial. For thousands of years, the church is going to hear that failure is not fatal and that God works in the midst of your inability. I'm going to tell that story. And by the way, the saints will be built up, not just immediately, but for years and years and years and years to come based on this request and what God asked for through Christ happened. You see? Exactly as he wants. So let me leave you with this word encouragement. Be encouraged. Even though we are weak, incredibly weak, so weak, I don't know how to define it, we have amazing help. Amen?
Be encouraged because our God understands. He gets so close, he feels with groanings too deep for words. Be encouraged. Pray what you feel and trust what he knows because he intercedes for us. Be encouraged. Our God answers all of our prayers, every one of them, because he gives what we would ask if we knew what he knew. Amen? So when we started this discussion, we were talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that sometimes I think we kind of ignore him, not maybe intentionally, but he's kind of out of sight, out of mind for us. This chapter is about the work and the ministry and the love of the Holy Spirit for his, God's people. From regeneration to sanctification to adoption and now to the category of prayer. How we live this side of the kingdom of God, depending upon what God would do, is through the Spirit of God. Are you thankful today? Amen. Amen. So let's thank him together. Father God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that he's present in our life. I thank you that he wakens sinners to see their need. I thank you that he teaches us the scriptures. God, I thank you so much that now he intercedes for us in our weakness, in our inability and lack of understanding and ignorance, God. He is sorting these things out and presenting them to you, that he cares deeply for us. God, we praise the Holy Spirit today and for who he is and what he's done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday.